The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Sally Lockridge, author of Daniel and His Starry Night Blanket, a story of illness and sibling love. Uh, It's the story of a, a young boy whose older sister gets cancer, and from his perspective, too much of the family's attention. Um, Sally is a, a not only an author, she's a clinical psychologist, an artist, and a cancer survivor. And September is National Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Sally. Thank you, Catherine. Great to have you here. Okay. Uh, Daniel and his Starry Night Blanket, which is a story as I, uh, of illness and sibling love, is really a story... I mean, this is Cancer Awareness Month for uh, National Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, but your book is not about the child who has cancer, but about the sibling of the child who has cancer, which is a whole different perspective. So can you give us a, an overview of, first of all, why you decided to write the book from that perspective? Um, and there are obviously, I think that, as a social worker, in my experience in dealing with children with cancer, um, very often the siblings are overlooked, their emotions, their feelings, um, where they're coming from. So it's a, it's a topic, I think, that really needs to be addressed, which you've done in the book, obviously. Yes, and um, the reason I did this um, topic um, or developed the story as I have is because I'm so aware from my own work as a clinical child psychologist of the impact of one child's illness or troubles or challenges on everybody else in the family. I know there's, there's lots of material, wonderful material that's been written for and developed for um, ill children and their parents, um, but there's much less for the siblings, especially younger siblings of very ill children. So what and, are some of the issues? What, what, what are the, some of the issues that surround a child who's, let's say, older sister or older brother or older sibling diagnosed with, and it doesn't necessarily, as you say, have to be cancer. It can be any catastrophic kind of illness where the family has right. to really rally around that sick child. Exactly. It could be multiple sclerosis or, or another illness. Um, naturally, when a child becomes ill, um, the parents are going to be focused on that child they can be totally overwhelmed by the whole process of um, diagnosis, new medical terminology, lots of appointments, financial and energy and time challenges. And the little kids um, can just, if not get overlooked, they can feel overlooked. I mean, most parents will provide for the care for younger children, the siblings, but um, kids are very emotionally sensitive, and they can feel 
overlooked, abandoned even, angry, sad, scared, lonely, guilty, even envious. I mean, some kids envy um, all the appointments that their older sibling may have or even stays on a hospital ward. Pediatric hospital wards, um, while they treat very serious illnesses in kids, are also very child-centered places with playrooms and play ladies and so forth. And so the siblings can be um, feeling left out of all of that. Fortunately, a lot of hospital programs now do have programs for the siblings or ways that they involve them. So the age makes a difference, and I mean, we're talking about younger children, and I imagine it's different depending on whether you are 5 or 15 or 20, yeah. you know, yeah. so, but right now we're talking about the younger child who may not even be able to uh, voice or even, you know, they're, they're, you described a whole array of feelings, but they, they, they can't verbalize them. And, That's and, right, um, yeah. Catherine, you're, you're pointing out an important thing, the age differences, because Younger children, and I'm talking about kids that are really preschool age in this book. The Daniel in the book, goes, it goes through a period of approximately three years, um, but he's still five or six when the book ends, and a little kid. Young kids don't have the cognitive capacity just naturally to understand things like death um, and even serious illness or the, the time involved in, say, treatment for a very serious illness. Um, they have emotions, certainly, but they may not be able to identify them verbally. Um, they're more um, expressed behaviorally. Um, and as you probably know, well, in your work, certainly, and in mine, as well as you know, being a mother, immediacy rules for young kids. They don't have much um, ability to delay gratification in those early years. It's a learned thing. Yeah. And I think uh, I sort of like I want to take, because I think to one, each one of those emotions is really important and for families mm-hmm. who are listening and who may be in the same situation, um, I think it's really helpful to be really specific about some of these emotions. For instance, one of the things I think that you mentioned is, I mean, the child can be afraid that he or she is going to die themselves. And, and, and you know, at that age, children think solely of themselves usually. I mean, That's it's, right. I mean it's natural to be egocentric yeah. um, at that age. Um, yes, I try to include um, these emotions in the book um, with examples. It's a story of a family I made up, but it's based on my own experience working with families and knowledge of um, the impact of cancer and other serious illness on family. I can give you an example there of, say, the um, feeling scared um, the child might develop the same illness. May I do that? Yes. Okay, in one of the pages I have um, Daniel, the little boy. Um, he's finding pieces of Kate's hair all over the house because she's begun chemotherapy and her hair is falling out. And so I wrote, um, when his grandmother saw him pulling on his curls, she said gently, your hair will not fall out. Daniel was still worried and asked, will I get sick too? Grandmother said no in a, big, in a strong voice and gave him a long hug. Daniel was not sure she was right. He remembered when he got a big runny nose just after Kate had one. So that's an example of how a child can get worried um, and scared. Um, they can also worry that they caused the illness in a sibling. Um, for example, Daniel remembered that he had yelled at his sister at times, just like regular, you know, normal sibling relationships. There are times of tension or 
maybe a dispute over a toy or attention from a parent. So he remembered some of those things, and he thought that he had caused her illness. But his parents in the story give him reassurance that um, they know that the kids love each other and that it's not his fault. I tried in the book to provide examples of the situations and then show some strategies, if you will, and responses from the parents that would help parents reading the book um, learn some ways that they might handle some of these tough situations. Yeah, let's talk about some of those strategies because I think, I mean, you know, different families are different. Each family comes to the situation with their own ability to provide strategies that are helpful, that are productive, and some families start out just, you know, in, in a situation where things aren't, even in a, even if everybody's healthy, they're not doing too well. So That's uh, right. Yeah. The health and, of the family, both medically or, or physically and psychologically, um, is important to how um, the family is going to be able to get through this tough journey. But there are lots of things um, that parents can do and ways that they can nurture the healthy young sibling. And I can certainly expand upon that. Yeah, let's talk about some of those very okay. specifically. In, well, you know, obviously they're in the book. Um, we don't want to give away the whole book either, but no. let's, yeah. I don't um, want to give away the ending of it, but no, um, I can talk about some of the strategies um, that parents can can do. For instance, one of the really important elements is to continue connection to and affection demonstrated affection for these younger siblings. And things like this, frequently ask, expressing affection verbally and physically um, to the kids, snuggling and cuddling with the young kids, um, reassuring the child of continuing love and caring, um, facilitating quality time together for the healthy and the ill children in favorite ways and, and, and perhaps in new ways that are necessary. Um, encouraging the wider family to express affection for the, the sibling. Um, and they're more like avoiding the temptation to shower the child with physical gifts. It's not about that. It's about the express continuance of connection, love, and affection. That's one, one element. Things. Another is to, and this is really important in all families, providing predictability and structure. Uh, you know, when a child is sick... Things are disruptive. There may be multiple doctor's visits, trips out of town, visits to hospitals, stays in hospitals, um, regular family routines like meals, playtime, naps, bedtime can get disrupted. And so it's important to establish or reestablish the structure as best they can. It may mean, you know, eating at a different time or um, uh, having playtime be shorter or um, at, you know, a friend's house or with a grandparent, but keeping some predictable routine is critical. What um, about when you talk about routine, because obviously that is important, but, um, Sally, routine, you know, there's kind of a before and an after. The routine changes, and, and yes. I, I'm always thinking people try to go back to, Keep trying to keep the same routine as they did before, before the child, the mm-hmm. one child was diagnosed, we'll say, with cancer. 
Uh or a catastrophic illness, and they want to kind of hang on to that old routine, don't you kind of have to accept, okay, now we have to establish a new routine, and that's going to work in a new way of, of, of a new kind of operating system. I think you're absolutely right, Catherine. I mean, to the extent that you can keep the uh, regular routine, that's great, say bedtime for the young child. But if things need to change, what's important is that you're letting the kids in on it and saying, you know, from now on we're going to eat um, our dinner at um, 5 instead of 6, or um, at dinner um, Dad's going to be away with Sarah. I'm making this up. but um, And you and I will be having our meals together, and then you'll get to see Dad at such and such. I mean, cueing the kids in to anticipated changes to the extent that you can is important. That's reassuring. It's kind of like when, even when we as adults are doing a medical visit or we're getting an exam, when the doctor says, um, now I'm going to, um, again, I'm making this up, press on your arm and it may feel a little tender. Or when I insert the needle, there's going to be a little prick. It's that letting people know ahead and cueing them in and reassuring as much as you can. Yeah. I think that's one of the critical things, as you're saying, in any illness, whether it's with adults or with children. And I think sometimes, at least in my experience clinically uh, with families, is that they want to hide things. And that's even more scary because, as you say, there's no expectation. A four-year-old can expect certain things. And if you tell that's them, right. as you say, um, why you're doing something, we, dinner is at five because we have to take, you know, your your sister to the doctors mm-hmm. at six right. every you know and mm-hmm. that's why we're doing it and then it's not a secret it's not a you know it's not it, it's I think really sort of seeking the truth in these kinds of situations it's speaking the truth being honest and empathic is important you don't want there to be an elephant in the living room and you don't want it to be growing yeah <laughs> um, but in terms of being honest and empathic I think that parents need to acknowledge the child's illness or condition to the sibling. Uh, in, in ways that the young kid can understand. In my book, um, early on when the parents tell Daniel, who's um, about three or four at that point, that his sister is ill and that she has to go to the hospital every week for treatment, something along those lines. And then he says, well, will she be well by this Saturday for the parade? You know, that's three days away. Their sense of time is not fully developed yet. So you have to speak to them in ways that um, they can understand. Another way of being honest is to include the child in hospital or clinic visits um, if it's comfortable for the younger sibling, letting them know where their their sister or brother is going to be so they can visualize it. Um, those, Those are some of the ways to continue being honest and empathic. And it's scary for parents, I think, too, because... They're probably having a hard time acknowledging the severity of a of a child's illness, and sometimes saying it out loud can be scary. <laughs> yeah. But yet they need to find a way to share it with the family. And one of the terms the, that we use in social work, and I think uh, one of the social worker who was talk, uh, describing your book is um, normalizing siblings' feelings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. So what does that mean when you say normalizing siblings' feelings? Well. Children, young children's feelings, and even teenagers, can be um, greatly 
exacerbated, heightened by when there's a crisis in the family. And here we have a health crisis for a brother or sister. And so let's say that the the sibling, let's say Daniel in this case, um, he's perhaps being a bit more demonstrative and showing his anger or being demanding in the book. You know, he notices that his sister Kate is getting all kinds of cards and gifts and special food, and he's saying, you know, I want macaroni and cheese, or, you know, why don't I get any cards? Things like that. Um, so um, while their em- emotions may be heightened and exaggerated in the way they're expressed, um, I think the parents need to be empathic around that, and they need to understand and listen carefully to the kids and recognize that they're not misbehaving. They're expressing themselves and help kids find words to put on, you know, their actions. So, for example, let's say a kid is, I don't know, ripping up something or stamping his feet. That might be a time to say, wow, you know, it looks like you're really angry right now, you know, stamping your feet. It's helping them find the words, the labels, and the connections between feelings and language, and that can help. I think, and I think another thing that happens in yeah. these kinds of situations is often, <clears throat> and it's hard not to do, but um, you know you have to be quiet because your sister's taking a nap. You can't yell, you know, right. you, you know, yeah. you can't run around. You can't have your friends over because she right. needs quiet or, or those kinds of things. And, and that sets up a situation of resentment and anger on the part of the, sure the child who's not sick. Yeah, I have a couple of examples in the book of that. I'll, I'll share one of them in a minute. But one of the things parents can do is. Um, Accept offers of help and even ask for help from the extended family, from caregivers, um, from, uh, you know, other children's parents. Maybe there can be a play date um, for the sibling who gets to go spend two hours in the afternoon with his or her friend while the sick child is at home sleeping, something like that. Um, or the grandmother can come and take or grandfather can come and take the healthy child out for a, for a walk, a bike ride, a zoo visit, things like that. Um, one of the examples I used in the book um, taps into what you were talking about, noise, like being quiet when the, the old child is sleeping. So I have uh, the boy Daniel is, he's racing his toy trucks and cars around, and his dad gets angry at him and um, whispers but angrily to him about being quiet, your sister is sleeping. So in that case, he really, and, and I put that in there so that it could show that parents get upset too and angry at these kind of things. None of us are perfect, and these are really challenging times. But in this story, in the next day, the dad takes the little boy to a ball game. And, of course, they can yell and scream there to their heart's content. Um, they eat popcorn. They have a great time. And then on the way home, the dad makes the distinction to the boy out loud. He says, you know, sometimes quiet is important, like when Kate is sleeping because she's ill. And sometimes noise is great, like when we were just there cheering for our team. So he's trying to help educate his son and help him learn more about, you know, how to behave in certain situations and to be empathic to his ill sister. What about the relationship between the sick child, the child with cancer, 
and the one, the healthy child. And, you know, because they talk amongst themselves, too, you know, a four-year-old and a six-year-old or whatever. The, you yeah, know, right. uh, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, certainly, I think it's important to um, find opportunities for the kids to keep playing together, to spend time together. That may shift. Let's say that the, the older sibling, the, the ill one, um, is in the hospital for an extended period. Well, there can be ways that um, they involve the younger sibling. Um, and perhaps there can be some activities they can do on the ill child's bed, drawing, playing a game, um, reading stories together, things like that. The older child could read to the younger child if he or she is up to it. It all depends on the illness and what's possible, and that's where there needs to be a lot of flexibility and creativity, I would say, in what the parents um, suggest or facilitate. Now, we don't have too much time left, so I kind of want to bring in your personal story, too, a little bit here at the end. I mean, you were diagnosed with breast cancer in 2010, um, obviously as an adult. So, But how did that impact your uh, decision to write this book specifically. I mean, you were a child psychologist, are a child psychologist, but um, because now you've had the cancer experience as an adult, not as a child, but mm-hmm. you are definitely in the inner circle. Oh, yes, yeah, it's different when you when you've had something. Um, well, actually, and just briefly, um, when I had breast cancer, and because I'm an artist, I decided after surgery that um, when I had to go to radiation, that I was going to make a painting every single day that would take 20 minutes or less um, right after I had my radiation treatment. My goal was to be able to express, even discharge, some of my own strong feelings, you know, the fear, the anxiety, the frustration, the worry, you know, the sadness, all those kinds of things. I didn't know what I was going to paint each day, but I started with a stack of 33 little five by seven inch inch surfaces that I was going to use for this. And I did that reliably every single day. It was a very private strategy. I also wrote down a sentence or two after I'd done the painting. And then I went on to the rest of my day, which often was painting uh, in my studio or outside. Well, no, it was during the winter. It was painting in my studio. Um, I'm a landscape and seascape painter. And later, I'm getting to this book momentarily, later, um, when some of the professionals, the doctors, nurses, and then friends saw the paintings I had done, they said, that's a book. I said, no, it's a private strategy. But eventually, in a year or so after that, I called the American Cancer Society, and within a week, they decided to publish the book. And that book is called Rad Art, A Journey Through Radiation Treatment, published by the American Cancer Society. So I think I was on, I knew that the artwork had helped me, not the art, not the paintings, but the process. Then when I started turning back to those paintings I had begun, I had begun some of these paintings for this book um, even before that, and it was to be a book about a normal little boy and show norm, the normal course of development through artwork and writing. But I decided I would introduce the idea of cancer in the family, and I realized that um, there just isn't much done for very young kids, the, the healthy siblings. So that's what led to this focus. Does that help explain it? 
Yeah, it does explain it. And also, I might add, this is something also that's not new to you in terms of authoring or co-authoring books for children. Because you, what you had the divorce workbook. I have a list of these changing there families. There are three yeah. books I did with colleagues. Yes. Yeah. So you do ta- tackle the tough stuff in families. <laughs> well, as a child psychologist, that's the kind of stuff that um you know families presented with and needed help with you know it could be um you know, parental absence or even a, a jailed parent or learning disabilities or emotional disorders a lot of stuff and medical yeah so it's a long situation. list but this the audience for Daniel and his starry night blanket would be what siblings patients parents yeah family yeah, yeah. The, the whole family um and I think it's also meant it's also meant for professionals that work with these families because it may be another resource for them in their say clinic work or teamwork, um, helping a family where um, a serious catastrophic illness has affected one of the children. Yeah, and unfortunately, I mean it seems that the pediatric cancer and and these illnesses that you've been talking about, I mean. See, there seem to be each year there are more and more diagnoses because we didn't say that in the beginning. But just to to give a an example, each year in the United States there are over fifteen thousand children between the ages of birth and nineteen years diagnosed with cancer. That's right. Yeah, and that's just here in the United States. That's um, right. Yeah. yeah. So they're so, big numbers. I mean, they may be small numbers compared to some other illnesses in adults. But if you think about individual families, you know. 15,000 every year, and that's just one disease, you know, getting hit with, struck with this horrible challenge. Yeah, exactly. Fortunately, there, you know, the cancer treatment nowadays is improving each year, so I'm hopeful in that way. And I think the cancer treatment also, which goes along with your book, but uh, it's not just dealing with the physical illness of the... It, that's it, right. It... it is as you mentioned, pediatric centers around the country at uh, healthcare centers, hospitals, etc. They really do try to take into um, the needs or address the needs of the whole family. I mean, I know and the whole person yeah, and the whole person yeah. and the child within the family and what kind of family it is. That's a whole other exactly. issue. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, well, I want to. If we're talking to Sally Lockridge, Ph.D., clinical psychologist, author, and artist, and the title of her book is Daniel and His Starry Night Blanket, A Story of Illness and Sibling Love. So, Sally, tell us what websites we can go to get more information about this book, but also in terms of the work that, you know, you do other work. And uh, well, One, one yeah. way or one place that has information about both of my books, these two books um, about cancer, um, is my website. It also shows a lot of my art. But if you go to the books page of www.sallylockridge.com, I'd like to spell Lockridge because it might surprise you. It's Sally Lockridge, L-O-U-G-H-R-I-D-G-E.com. Another place would be Amazon where both books are listed. Um, MainAuthorsPublishing.com is at yet another site. Um, if you Google Rad Art, the first book, it will come up all over with some YouTubes and other things as well. And Daniel and a Starry Night Blanket is getting increasing, you know, citations because it's a relatively new book. Yeah, the book came out what in August? Yes. Yeah. 
So I, that was kind of my last question. What's been the response of, say, the medical community or the people? Well, every oncologist, every uh, social work, um, oncology social worker, and other allied therapeutic fields has been, the response from all of them has been uniformly very positive. Um, and I've heard from a number of parents who have been in this situation and found it right on. So, um, you know, really suited to the families. So that's been gratifying and it encourages me to try and get the book out there to the families it can help. Well, you are doing that, you, and, and uh, obviously by going on shows like mine mm. and getting out here. Yeah, um, you are a very talented woman. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, doing, yeah. yeah, and doing good work. Um, so, um, you know, I'll mention the book, uh, Daniel and His Starry Night Blanket, A Story of Illness and Sibling Love. You can get it, buy it at Amazon, hopefully bookstores everywhere. Um, and, Sally, good luck with all the work you're doing, and thanks so much for being on, on the show today. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation, Catherine. Great. We're going Have to take a good a sh- day. You Bye-bye. Too. We are going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Have you heard your 15 minutes of fame? How about four times that every single week? It's the fame game. Listen as Maddie Rose, who is up and coming in the world of fame, brings you fame from all walks of life. You'll hear from doctors, teachers, mentors, life heroes, as well as those in the fields of acting, movies, music, and more. Who knows? You might be the next one Maddie Rose talks to on the air. Listen for the fame game every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Kids Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning, my second guest is Carol Valone Mitchell, Ph.D., uh, her book is called Breaking Through Bitch, How Women Can Shatter Stereotypes and Lead Fearlessly. Uh, Carol Valone Mitchell uh, co-founded Talent Strategy Partners, which is a talent management consulting firm in 2001. She has worked with numerous Fortune 500 companies to identify and develop leaders who can build and nurture the right workplace culture and drive results for women. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Carol. Thanks, Catherine. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, here we have your book, Breaking Through the Bitch, How Can We Shatter Our Stereotypes and Lead Fearlessly? And as you mentioned in the book, and as what I thought when I first saw the title of your book, is like, oh, my God, we've been doing it 30 years. What, has anything changed? I mean, are we still in the same position with our stereotypes that women have to, if they do things and they're aggressive or they seem like they're too pushy, uh, that that's viewed negatively in business, whereas for men, no, it, that's fine, that's acceptable, and as a matter of fact, they get ahead and they're viewed as competent leaders. Uh, we still have, what, how many, only, what did you say, 5% of Fortune 5 company CEOs are women? What's changed? Um, why hasn't it changed, and why aren't we head of companies? Uh, obviously, that's what your book is about. Um, and um, how are you going to change it for us? <laughs> there are a lot of questions there. Yeah. Um, actually, you know, I I have looked at the statistics, and um, it's it's around fifteen percent um, of the S and P five hundred companies have women. Um, at the top, so um, and about 23 Fortune 500 companies that have a female CEO. Um, so that has gone up. I started this research um, in 2000, 1999-2000, and at that time there were only three women uh, CEOs in the Fortune 500. Um, so I've watched that go up, um, but. You know, when you draw the slope of the line um, over the years, it's you know, it's not it's not that dramatic. Um, and as you look at the statistics, we've also made some gains in the middle management levels. So around the middle, we have uh, almost fifty percent women um, in these companies. So. The question then, and people call this the sticky floor, what's holding women back? Um, and in my research, I'm looking at, well, who are the women who've made it beyond that? And what do they look like? What do they have in common? So that we can, we can talk about that um, and present that to women who are stuck and uh, see if, if uh, that can give them some guidance how to break through that brick wall, if you will. Let's talk about um, the stereotypes because you're talking about these women who have done that. They've got they've they've overcome that middle management. Uh, I, would, I mm-hmm. guess getting stuck, the sticky floor, the glass ceiling, all of the words that we right. have for that, but are hitting the brick wall. But so they've gone up and beyond. They've overcome the stereotypes. 
what are the stereotypes that hold us back? Oh, um, well, the whole, the whole concept of leadership tends to be very male, and this is something that I talk about in the first chapter of my book because, you know, the question is, well, why, why do women have to lead differently? <clears throat> and it's because we have expectations of how women should be. And we have expectations of how women should not be. <laughs> Unfortunately, that how women should not be often intersects with how leaders should be. Um, and uh, they call it role incongruity, incongruity because, um, you know, some of the images of good leadership are very male stereotyped. Okay, what um, are those? Let's, let's, um, what are those? So it's, it's the... The men who are, uh, you know, commanding, they are charismatic, uh, very strong, stick to their point, um, good debaters, uh, assertive, very assertive. Um, people see that as a strong leader. And um, when women do those same things, uh, it's not as acceptable. And... Part of that is that women are, and it's, it's a catch-22 as well, um, we expect women to be nurturing, to have empathy. Um, we expect women to, um, you know, really be embracing. Um, and as a leader, I mean, I think a lot of us, and people even not in a leadership role can relate to this, um, you can see that uh, when you look at the people you're working with, um, you can see a real difference between how the men and women in your organization are seen and, um, and how people react to that. Um, so you're not rewarded if you're in a Fortune 5 company well, in a, in a cor- well, just in a, in a, a, co- a corporate situation, uh, like if you're empathetic and nurturing, that's not seen, as you say, as keys to power, but they're really seen as signs of weakness, aren't they? Uh, it, 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 um, those qualities, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it depends on how, it's, how that's exhibited. So, um, so yes, I, you know, I, I do have my own experience as well, um, as, uh, you know, I worked at DuPont um, as a scientist um, before moving into the human resources area and going back from my graduate degree. And uh, at an was, Ivy League school at the University of Pennsylvania. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, so I was working while I was going to graduate school, which took a long time. But, um, but in any case, the <clears throat> I was certainly getting messages, if not verbally, just, um, you know, by, by being good at reading my environment, that being emotional was not considered professional. So, um, you know, I, I really looked at that later, particularly in my graduate work, um, I did a, a group dynamics class, and it was filmed. And I saw myself in this group looking uh, almost wooden, and I thought, wow, <laughs> yes. 
that, that looks pretty bad. So, you know, it's a swing of the pendulum, Catherine, I think, that, um, you know, I, I stripped myself of, of all emotion so that I was thinking I was doing the right thing and being professional, but I, I needed to swing that pendulum back um, and get back in the middle, if you will. So, well, in other words, you can be both. You know, I'm thinking because I think your book and, and your, fits right into this election, actually, that we're having. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm thinking of Donald Trump. Okay, he's extremely emotional. He's right out there, maybe over-the-top emotional, but at the same time, he's very forceful, and he's very aggressive, and he combines those two or the several of those kinds of qualities together and winning people over, men and women. Um, so uh, that's one example, and I want you to comment on both of these, because I'm thinking now Hillary, who, you know, as uh, I, one, I, whether one likes Hillary or not, you can't really dispute the fact that she has all the credentials for being president of the United States. But now they're asking her to take, to become softer and sweeter <laughs> and more, can change her whole persona and relate to the people. I don't think they would ask, any of these other male candidates to do that. I mean, that's my opinion. But so look what we're doing to her in this case. Um, right. Yeah. And <laughs> I have so much to say about that. Well, say so it. Yeah. Thoughts. Um, so um, first of all, you know, I watched Hillary in 2008. Um, I had not started writing the book. I had... Um, I had not revisited some earlier data. Um, I did a lot of research last year um, as well. So in any, in any case, I was watching Hillary in 2008 and thinking, oh, my God. You know, it was like looking somewhat at myself being wooden, right? Um, and, and yet there was, there, was, um, there was an event where Hillary teared up. It was toward the end of the campaign, um, in 2008, and it was New Hampshire, I think, wasn't it? Right? Is she going to be strong enough to be president? And so anyway, Jon Stewart (laughs) um, did a great bit um, showing, you know, showing that and, and, you know, and then showing pictures of men like John Boehner, (laughs) tearing up, getting choked up, crying, you know, in a public forum, and, you know, and also... uh, you know, some, some men being, getting mad and being, you know, yelling, right? And, and he was just showing that, you know, we, you know, when a man cries, it's like, oh, isn't he wonderful? Look at that. You know, he really cares. Whereas, you know, with Hillary, um, it was, you know, it was, she can't handle the job, clearly. It feeds into that women are too emotional, um, so, meanwhile, fast forward to this campaign season, and uh, Maureen Dowd of the New York Times wrote a, an op-ed a couple of months ago that she titled Grandma Mia, and she was talking about how Hil- Hillary now has this grandma twinkle in her eye and, you know, this softer presentation, and she was saying, well, which Hillary are we going to get? right, the one we saw before or the one, the reinvented image. And I thought, give this woman a break. I think Hillary's doing great to have learned um, from how she was treated in 2008. I think that her bringing more of herself to the table um, and showing this, you know, this 
some stereotypic female reaction characteristics, I think it's all good. So, so that's kind of my riff on Hillary. I, but, you know, getting back to Donald Trump, I was thinking, yeah, you're right. Uh, he is being emotional. But think about the way he is being emotional and just the way he presents himself. Would a woman be able to do that same thing <laughs> and get away with it? No. Not for a, not for a second. No, so, not for, no, not for a second. And I'm thinking of that in terms of Hillary, for instance, even with her, the, the, this email stuff that's going on and the way right. she's been sort of forced to respond. Uh, you know, we're making the assumption that there wasn't really anything illegal done. Perhaps it wasn't done the way she would do it now. And she finally apologized. And I'm thinking, would, would Donald Trump apologize? Yeah. Or would he say, you know, get over it? It's not, I, I, I'm, well, right. I'm cooperating. Uh, right. I, it's, it's legal. And uh, now we have to mm-hmm. go on to next. But yeah. they were kind of stuck in the morass of forcing Hillary to, like, really, yeah. Sit there and, and now that and, she has, they're, they're implying that, well, her handlers have instructed her. They did focus groups to figure out how she should respond. And, the, and so even though she did that, now we're questioning her motives, and is that really, is she really sorry? So, um, yeah, it's all very, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a double standard for sure. Yep. And, it, um uh, and that mm-hmm. ties into your book. You know, we're t- I mean, the title of your book, Breaking Through Bitch. I mean, it's like we're still kind of, I mean, yes, statistically, you talked about some of the numbers. There are more Fortune 500 CEOs, women, but we're still there. Um, mm-hmm. It's it just, and I mean, Hillary is, is, you know, you and I have been talking, is the, is, is the example of that. Um, Right. Yeah. So what are we going to do <laughs> as women to be leaders, to be viewed right. as forceful, strong leaders, uh, given that we have the credentials for whatever the job is? We're, we're starting off with that. Then what? How do we, how can we? Right. Yeah. What yeah. can we do? Um, and, you know, I, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting Hillary, but from people who have, um, they, they see very much the kind of characteristics that I talk about in the book. Um, you know, she's funny. She's, um, you know, she totally negates any imitation factor, you know. Um, she's a very smart woman. Great, not only great credentials, but a lot of great experience. And, you know, in a way, it's a good model um, to hold up because here's this woman who, you know, is just superb, and it would be very easy for you to feel intimidated by her, right, Um, just because of what she is. But she has to negate that in order to be relatable and approachable, and she can do that in person. But, you know, in this circumstance, I think it's really hard for her to do that, right? Um, So... uh, so anyway, but you were asking about. Uh, I just and I want to comment on what you said because yes, I think yes. what about I'm going to this here's a, a hypothetical. What if Hillary were on her third husband, let's say like Donald Trump is, <laughs> or she had had 
affairs like her husband has had and all the other, most all the 99% of the presidents, uh, how much of a chance do you think she would have of uh, becoming the next president of the United States? Uh, I think that it would be held against her. <laughs> um, I mean, there, there are numerous, yeah, there are numerous uh, examples that you can point to about you know, in the political world, uh, it's it's shocking how much men get away with, right? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that what I'd like to see, and this is, you know, this is Carol's fantasy world, but, um, and, you know, every time I see a little inkling of it happening, um, you know, I, I glom onto it, but I think men have to act more like women. <laughs> I think that... The more women who are in leadership roles, um, and they change the culture of the organization, and it becomes an environment where um, the kind of behavior, the objectionable behavior that some men demonstrate would not be tolerated. So, I mean, it's, it's an evolutionary process for sure. And, um, and don't we as women have to show in those kinds of situations, particularly in companies, that the bottom line is affected in a positive way. Hey, we are making more money. We are gaining more clients. We have a yeah. happier, uh, you know, our employees are doing better. So, I mean, you can really kind of translate that into very specific positive attributes of the company. And just getting, yes. because uh, you have, and cause we don't have too much time left, but what's called the Women's Leadership Blueprint, which is a behavioral profile of success. So you have... I assume have developed some very specific ways in which women can behave that will demonstrate that it, all of this, their behavior will be, the company will be better off. Yes, and it's, it's a composite, that, that women's leadership blueprint is a composite of all these, it, all these successful CEO, C-suite level women, um, what they had in common. And so it's almost, I, I see the book as providing people with a role model that's based on, a, you know, many people, right? And, and there are stories you, that, um, and because the research, you know, as a psychologist, you know, this was all done, you know, confidentiality, so everything's anonymous in the book, people opened up to me <laughs> and told me, about experiences that they had had, and I had them talk in detail about it so that I, I then took the transcript and literally coded the behaviors. And then I looked across all of these interviews and said, wow, this is a theme that keeps coming up. So that would be, you know, one of, like tempering assertiveness is one of the competencies that I list in the, in the blueprint. Um, and in order for people to understand what that looks like, I pull snippets of the different stories from the interviews. So they hear, they can recognize it there and say, ah, I get it. This self-deprecating humor really works. And here's how, you know, here's how this woman did it. Um, and in some cases, I'm comparing how women do this versus how men do this um, because I interviewed men as well. Um, yeah, I mean, so, I think that's the beauty of your book because you have all these very specific real life examples. Yeah, so that mm -hmm. we can understand all the all the concepts. One of the things that you said in the book, and I've heard women like you in your position uh, often mention this, that men always 
seem to have successful men always talk about mentoring along the way, other men who have mentored them along the way, helped them to get where they were. And women don't usually, or very often, I should say, find themselves in that kind of a position, and that really holds them back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really, um, I think the big thing is around, you know, they people are talking now about it's not really mentorship, it's sponsorship. So, sponsorship, all right. What's yeah. the difference? Yeah, so the difference is that mentorship, it's mentoring is coaching people, teaching, you know, teaching them the ropes. Um, and, and often it's, you know, using yourself, and, and in, this case, in many cases it's men, they, you know, they, they model leadership. Um, and sometimes that doesn't translate well for women, right? Um, so... Mentoring is more about coaching. Sponsorship is when you, when you as a woman are advancing, your sponsor makes sure that in the places that you aren't, you know, in the boardroom, you know, at the, uh, you know, in the executive suite conversations, that you are represented, that you are brought up, that you have visibility. So they're promoting you. Um, that that is the real critical piece is um, is getting that and a so lot how do of you women... get that because you're talking about let's say you are a woman you're in middle management are you talking about mm-hmm. so that there's somebody who is in the boardroom ahead of you that yeah. you have somebody up there talking about you you know Sally Smith right is, okay they're selling you yeah. they're selling it's, you they're um, marketing you yes and you know I had I I had someone tell me many 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 years ago. Um, when I had joined a, a particular company, and she she said, "What you need to do is you need to get to know the people, and you know it was sort of the power people, um, and you have to see who who you're going to click with because you need high level coverage here if you want to succeed. Um, you have to have somebody that's sponsoring you." Um, and she was totally right. At the time, I was like, well, I don't know, you know. <laughs> um, but totally right. And I think she was ahead of her time in recognizing that um, uh, because the, the whole thing about sponsorship has really only been out there for maybe five or six years. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, that that um, cow goes kind of against sort of the way we've been taught as women to operate because we think if we do a good job and we get our work yeah. done and we're good girls in the sense of doing our work within the company, that we will be recognized. And that's right. not necessarily, yeah. Yeah, not your true. work will speak for itself. Yeah. Um, and for me, that was a really tough lesson to learn personally, you know, uh, just because of, you know, pursuing academic excellence, you know, being a research scientist, I... I was doing really good work, but there wasn't anybody saying, hey, look at this work Carol's doing, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's key. Yeah, and I really did think my, you know, I was embarrassed to toot my own horn. And, um, you know, and there's, there's a whole line of thinking around how you can do that. I mean, and just sort of a quick tip. Yeah. If you have somebody else doing it for you, um, you know, that's the key. You know, so that you don't look like you're shamelessly self-promoting. 
Um, but if, if you have um, a peer, an associate, who does that, that, that's the key. So you have to learn to play the game. We have to say goodbye. Uh, oh. I could, yeah, I know. This went by very quickly, but, uh, so, but, but, you know, I've got about like 20 seconds, so I would want to mention the book again, Breaking Through Bitch, How Women Can Shatter Stereotypes and Lead Fearlessly. Carol Ballone Mitchell, PhD. Go online. You can buy the book, Amazon bookstores everywhere. Great having you on the show today. And we have a website that is literally just breakingthroughbitch.com. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Carol. Uh, we're I'm, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Bye, Catherine. Thank you. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.